and and arguably Bowie got away with murder. Yeah. But then again, <laughs> yeah. I kind of think it should be we should have more cases like the Bowie. back to a, another bonus shoot. It's been a while since we did this. Exclusive exclusive, in, exclusive interview. Mm-hmm. Our exclusive. 1980s Ex- now. Hey, every week exclusive our, bonus. Exclusive bonus. <laughs> exclusive bonus interview. <laughs> hey, every week on our regular show that's not a bonus in any way. It's not exclusive. <laughs> and there's no interviews. Well, but that one comes argued. out every week on Mondays. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about 1980s pop culture and its continued influence today. Hey, my name's Will, mm-hmm. and joining me on this bonus exclusive special interview <laughs> are my friends and co-host Kat and John. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey there. Hey, I'm very excited. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be speaking with uh, Blake Robin, who's better known as Luxury. You know, uh, Luxury mm. is, you know, he's, look, he's many things. He's a songwriter. He's a musicologist. But... The thing that how many X's are in there? Two X's. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Kat. Ooh, oh, with right. two X's. Yeah, right. So when you're when you're looking for him, and you're going to want to, um, but listen to the interview first, then look for him. Um, but what okay. he's what he's doing <laughs> is you know sharing so much information about uh, music that we love and, and things that you wouldn't necessarily know. And oftentimes, as we've talked about, uh, it, it's, it involves samples and mm-hmm. interpolation and explaining what the difference is. <laughs> one of my favorite things I learned and I, and a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm a nerd like he is with regard to music. <laughs> oftentimes I'm just learning or hearing something that I've already, already aware of, you know, and yeah. I'll get a little angle. Yeah. And what's great about his things is they're also like a little narrative or story. So it's intriguing and he kind of hooked in. So I may have the information, but not some sort of, you know, a little bit of uh, the story, you know, the backstory. Yeah. And I learned that blue Monday is comprised of all these different, they were inspired by all these different artists to create, new order, I should say, to create yeah. Blue Monday, one of my favorite songs of the 1980s and certainly one of my favorite okay. uh, new, new Order songs. Fantastic. The bass is inspired by one thing. The drums, somebody else. The guitar from Ennio Morricone's, uh, I'm going to say, or is he Morricone? I don't know. Morricone, mm-hmm. he's Italian. His riff <laughs> on the Spaghetti Westerns, his theme that he plays for the Clint, East, Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, you should definitely check it out. So this has got me thinking, this conversation has got me thinking about, uh, on our next oh. episode, I want to talk to you guys about samples. Oh. Uh, and I've got the top 10 most sampled songs, asterisks that I'm going to share from you from who sampled. Okay. And I right. want to tell you though, ahead of time here, what they are examples of mostly is R&B songs, I think mm-hmm. I want to see, are they all R&B songs? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think they're all R&B songs that were then sampled by, primarily by hip hop artists. Now there's some exceptions and quite honestly, mm-hmm. to make sure that you guys hear songs that you're familiar with, because I don't know how much hip hop you know, I definitely mm-hmm. throw in some pop songs that are top 40 pop songs that you will recognize mm-hmm. that have these samples. Phew. The way you're describing okay, it, Will, is uh, like we were talking offline the other day about how since I dropped Spotify, I've started listening to YouTube music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And YouTube music has the same algorithm that YouTube video has, which is if you, we talked about engagement. If you play a song all the way through, then you, YouTube goes, oh, you like that, do you? I'm going to play <laughs> 10 more songs by that artist or in that genre or whatever. <laughs> and so because I, I'm familiar with a small sampling of, of 80s hip hop, uh-huh. Uh, just the ones that I particularly really enjoyed. 
Um, but I, I listen to one all the way through and it's like, oh, well, here's a whole bunch more 80s hip hop. And yeah. I'm like, well, great. Cause I haven't heard like a whole album of Eric, Eric B and Rakim. And I listened to that. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is a little farther in the timeline, but you're talking about older, you know, uh, R and B songs that were sampled by mm-hmm. hip hop, yeah. but that continued in hip hop as like originators of hip hop were sampled by newcomers to hip hop. And I'm listening uh-huh. through these songs and I'm hearing, I know, I know that sample. I've heard them say that before yeah. in like a BC boys song. I've heard that yeah. before. Yeah. And it's, and like, I'm discovering like, his first great songs in the first place, but I'm listening through it and I'll hear one little, one little, somebody goes, Hey, I'm like, Holy crap. I've heard that a million times in this <laughs> other song because they used it over and over and over. <laughs> Yeah. It's a whole bunch of musical Easter eggs. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They are. Yeah. 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 Intentionally or not. Yeah. And what's most interesting to me is, well, so again, so, so on our next episode, we're going to talk about these 10 most yes. sampled songs, yes. asterisks. I'll okay. explain it when we do that, when we record the episode, but cool. Awesome. They are in the direction of a hip hop song. Most often sampling an R and B song. All right. Yeah. There's okay. another interesting category I'd like to present to you, but I don't, I'm not prepared to do that today. Maybe it could be almost a whole episode where hip hop yeah. songs sample non R and B songs. Then you get some oh. real interesting things there. Right. Then Let's you're looking like, like, like the vanilla ice connection, right? Yeah, ice, ice that's baby. a great example. Yeah. Because yeah. mm. yeah, under pressure is like taken from pop and then used yeah. in hip hop. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Let's and do that sometime. What yes, I yes, do yes. want to share with you though, is the very rare, a pop song sampling mm-hmm. a prior hip hop song. Oh, hmm. now you don't usually okay. see that happening, right? We're talking right. about right, right. pop. We're talking about mostly hip hop samples, R and B, occasionally a pop song samples that same R and B song. I'm talking about mm-hmm. an existing hip hop song gets sampled uh-huh. by a later pop song. So I've got a song for you here. Okay. Uh, I want to see if you guys can tell me if you've Ooh. heard this song before. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, trying to work it out. Okay. Uh, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Keep going, What's John. The name of the song? I can't place it. Uh, He's definitely singing want to scream lyrics. and shout. Okay. <laughs> scream and shout. I don't know who it is. Who is it? Huh. Let's go all the way. Oh, Let's yeah, go, go all John. the way. Hey, mm-hmm. looking for a bed. Wow, John. Turns out this is actually a fly girl by Boogie Boys. Okay. Nice. I know both those songs and never made the connection that one was sample of the other. Yeah. Because I remember listening to Fly Girl when I was in high school. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Would you hear okay. it now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Let's get Cat caught up here. Yep. Yes. Right. Get it's like that cymbal crash where it's muted. Like, so that they've got the hi-hat stomped mm. down and they're smacking it. Take it down. <laughs> top. That's cool. Mm-hmm. No, can't hear it? Work it out. I feel like I've heard it. It's just not something I've not heard No, no. You okay. hear the Fly Girl beat in there? Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So both of these songs came out in 1985, but uh, as I as I implied or, or directly told you, Fly Girl precedes Let's Go All The Way. Now, it turns mm. out, however, uh, I don't know if this is properly a sample. It might very well be, but they were both uh-huh. produced by Ted Courier, who first created the Boogie Boy song, and then probably what it was is they just reused the drum pattern they had already programmed on a drum machine uh, when they did uh, Let's Let's go Very all the cool. way. And who's the artist of Let's Go All the Way? Did you say? Let's go all the way is Sly Fox. Sly is Fly Fox. Fox. Okay, yeah, got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I love yeah, this I stuff. That. So I've got a, I got another one for you again because if, if anybody can think of any other examples of this, please let me know. Will at 1980s now talking about mm-hmm. a pop song that sampled a hip hop song, not an R and B song, a hip hop mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. The hip hop song may have sampled somebody else too. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. Right. Uh huh. All right. So let me let me ask you guys if you've ever heard uh, this song. 
No, never heard this song. So this is. Um, no. And you may not have. I thought it's maybe you'd recognize the beat familiar. much the way that you recognize the uh, beat, uh, the way John recognized "Let's Go All the Way" by hearing a fly girl. Uh, okay. This the song that I just played you, however, is Schooly D's uh, "P.S.K." Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Okay. Um, All right. But uh, hmm. although you may not have ever heard that song, you may be more familiar with this song that came out in the 1990s. No? No. Really? Nope. I, Not me. I wish I could. <laughs> and okay. when was this? I, I guess I'm... 90... Uh, I, what? 1991. 91. Mm. This is Kiss Them For Me by uh, Susie okay. and the Banshees. It oh. Was, it reached number her. 23 on the Hot 100. How about that? Wow. Really? I'm happy for her. You knew the Indigo Girls, but not Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm sorry. Well, look, based on what... Uh, you don't apologize to Will. He, he's not allowed to gatekeep you what music yes, you're allowed no. to like. So yes, that's, yes, yes, no, yes. that's true. And I have, to, I have to tell you, like, at that period of time, for sure, I was definitely opened up to listening to music that I was not previously mm-hmm. familiar yeah. with, but I was not listening to popular radio anymore. Mm. It was more through friends. It was through mixtapes and it was through what was somebody playing in their dorm room. And I wasn't, I I wasn't doing the Z100 thing anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And, and also I loved oldies too. Like I was, I was going through a huge oldies kick at that time. So yeah. Wow. In tune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have the same problem in 10 years, assuming I'm still alive. In 10 years, people oh. are like, well, this hit the top 40 in 2021. I'm like, I was listening to 80s. I didn't hear any of that stuff. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're dead, you're definitely going to have that problem. Well, it, it'll be it'll be a well it'll be a larger problem then. Now, but. according to Wikipedia, uh, they, they say that Susie and the Banshees Mm-hmm. They don't describe her as having sampled Schooly D. Instead, they say they oh. both use a preset from the Roland TR-909, which is not a, mm. a synthesizer that I made up like oh. John's... Uh, oh, no, like my Korg, whatever. Korg yes, F70. Korg, uh, yeah. uh, and here's the preset from the TR-909 that, that they're talking about. It sounds like you're going to challenge it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it, right? Yeah, okay. You can agree it sounds like the beat. Yeah. It does. What? I want to but does that qualify as a sample, though, if you're using hmm. equivalent equipment well, with a preset? Well, I'm going to mm-hmm. say that well, I don't even think Wikipedia is right, because I want you to listen to the beginning of Susie and the Banshees song again, and, and you're going to okay. notice something I hope, and if you don't notice it, I'm going to we're going to talk about it on the next episode where we talk about samples. But listen, oh, okay. you heard, you know the beat now, right? You know the beat. But there's mm-hmm. something else there. We're being right mm-hmm. now like... Music forens- forensics, mm-hmm. f- forensicologists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> zoom in, enhance, zoom yeah. in, enhance. <laughs> now, huh. in addition to the, you know, Indian style music and rhythms. Yeah. Thing going on back there. Listen to the mm-hmm. very like first few seconds of the song. You're going to hear something that you hear in a lot of hip hop songs and not so many pop songs. Okay. 
there's actually a DJ <laughs> scratching on there. I, sounded, I heard scratching. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about what that, where that scratch came from when we talk next time. But now okay. listen okay. once again to Schoolie D's song that uses the TR-909. Hmm. There's I hear the scratch. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Spot, though, so they right? really sampled it. It's not really just using a same yeah. preset. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Anyway, this mm-hmm. is me mm-hmm. trying to imitate luxury. No one can imitate luxury. He spends <laughs> hours researching 30 seconds and producing probably more hours producing these videos that are just absolutely fantastic. So, <sighs> enough of playtime. <laughs> Uh, we'll be back in just a moment with the real thing. Blake yep. Robin, better known as Luxury. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 
all of that kind of leads to this moment where I've been uh, a published musician. I came to LA with a publishing deal. So I would co-write for other artists in parallel. I'm doing my own artist project, which is luxury with two X's where I make disco music and I write my own songs and sing them. I'm doing remix, remixes and edits. All that's kind of in the stew. And then when the pandemic hit, um, one thing I left out was there was a chapter where I'd been collecting multi-track stems, which are the isolated mm-hmm. instrumental and acapella parts of famous songs. And I'd, I'd been given them, there's the sort of underground network of traders. And oh, one of them was a friend of mine. This. Yeah, I know. They're so it's clean. Kind of, what you have is so clean. I know. They're, they're, they're not done by AI. They're not DIY. They're just yeah. the real deal. Like there's some engineer in the bowels of capital, like was dubbing copies. And it's like, I'm going to take some of these for myself and give them to my friends. And that's sort of fostered what you know, this underground black market uh, of which I am not technically for legal reasons apart, but I, I do <laughs> reap the fruits of. Um, so I had these and I decided to actually, speaking of 80s, yeah. you know, remixing begins to a degree in the late 70s, early 80s with extending the music. Oh, yeah. It starts with the song exists and we're not really adding or subtracting. We're just elongating. Mm-hmm. So we're taking sections that previously had layers of synths and vocals and we're stripping it down to the beats and the bass. And then you sort of add in the keyboards, et cetera. And your, your three minute song is seven minutes long. Right. We've come a long way from that era, but when I first got the stems, I was like, I kind of want to go back to that. I want to make some remixes mm. that aren't replacing the music mm-hmm. using the acapella because modern remixing tends to be that. It's just the vocal. Right. And you've replaced all the music with something else. You've replaced it with a harder hitting beat or a genre specific beat. So that's what I started to do. And I did that with this Don Henley song, with this Eagle song. And for legal reasons, I didn't say either of those words. Uh, a song by a band that's represented yeah. by a type of bird. Yeah. Um, a bird song. And when I band. did, I did that and I put this, this remix out in the world in sort of the underground disco edit scene, which is a small, group of people who you know are, are mainly DJing songs of that era, but sort of yacht rock and boogie and funk and sort of more left of center selection. When I took this very mainstream song and put a vocoder to replace the voice and stretched it out so it was slower, um, it really kind of captured the attention of a few pretty prominent DJs in that scene who blew me up and caused me to be found <laughs> by the record label and long story short, I got a cease and desist and my new career as a DJ exploded. Suddenly I was wanted yeah. <laughs> in both ways. I <laughs> say, so, yeah, uh, literally both, and figuratively, yeah. both senses of the term. So I, I'm apologizing that this long story short has failed. No, no, be short. But, um, I, I only bring that, um, chunk into it about the stems and the remixing of yeah. using the stems, the multi-track isolated parts. Because fast forward to pandemic times, I'm on the couch like everyone, scrolling TikTok, thinking about my life, thinking about what comes next, thinking I really have been wanting to talk about and share these stems for quite some time. Right. Like it's really wonderful thing to be able to isolate, to just listen to the acapella from under pressure. And like you get chills up your spine when mm-hmm. you hear Freddie Mercury and David Bowie and you sense them looking at each other because in the isolated vocal... It's just you listening to them in a room 40 years ago. Right. So I really wanted to share that. And I started to make these videos. I did a video about Britney Spears' Toxic. And I did one about Prince, Let's Go Crazy. And 
and they that started it actually overnight literally became a huge thing i went from 0 to 50,000 followers in a weekend on tiktok and that's where we are now where i've just been like enjoying continuing to tell those stories while i'm still making music while i'm still you know doing both You've given me so many thoughts and questions and I realize now there's no way we're going to talk about anything chronologically because it just, okay. if, which is fine. Uh, with regard to the, the remixes, uh, you, you point out the Britney Spears one with toxic, you know, where you, you, you find the samples from this Bollywood film, you know, that are used. How do you go about uh, designating what you choose to talk about? And then ultimately also, Find, find the source material. I mean, you know, certainly talking about in the eighties, this yeah. was just, again, word of mouth kind of stuff, but now we have other resources to do that. But a lot of these still are not something you would necessarily find on the internet. I think. Well, it's a lot of one step in front of, and then the next step, one foot in front of the other, because I don't necessarily go into it knowing where it's going to go. Okay. The exploration begins with, I had the stems for toxic. So that's an easy be beginning. And from there I started to, by listening and cross-referencing with available resources like all music and Wikipedia and liner notes from albums, mm. just that kind of messy process of research, essentially. Right. It's unpredictable. You delve into it going, well, I think I just want to talk about this song, but I do not know where I'm going with it. Right. That turned into the discoveries that I made about who the players were, who, what, what they did, what they did, you know, aside from being Swedish session musicians, um, they also had lives outside of, you know, the pop scene where one of them, I thought it was two of them and I had to make a correction later, but that's its own sub story we can talk mm. about. You know, there was, there's a metal connection, a black metal connection, right. not shocking given that it's Sweden. Mm -hmm. And if you're a musician in Sweden, you're probably doing ABBA like pop or you're doing metal, <laughs> but guess what? You're sometimes you're doing both. Sometimes you're doing both. The best stuff. Um, so in the case of, of that video, but actually in the case of all 150, 160 that I've done by now, they all kind of start with, I have the stems and I like the song is kind of the starting point. And then I just start to research. And that's mm. usually a five hour, six hour process. It's never less than that. I'm going oh. through each stem. Mm. I'm listening. I'm thinking, what does this remind me of? I'm kind of de deconstructing it with my musician brain. I'm like, okay, well that's a four chord and a six chord. So mm. all of this stuff is incredibly messy. And um, the outcome is wonderfully surprising to me half the time. Like yeah. I won't have known going into it that the, kind of linchpin of the story, the first three seconds that becomes the hook was this thing that took me four hours of looking into it before right. I found it. It is pretty fascinating how, you know, like you say, you don't know what you're get, getting into when you get into these, but you, you follow just sort of what your interests are. That right. in most of your, you know, I don't know, what, 30 second, 45 second minute documentaries, there is right. a narrative often where, you know, I mean, literally they loop back around for, you know, probably, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever for, for counts, but they do, there is this kind of arc and, you know, sort of flow to it that you're able to accomplish in such a short time. I think part of what's emerged as I've started to do the videos and it happened pretty quickly was, well, thank you for that, by the way, because that is, thank you. It's a compliment. The fact that it seems like a comprehensive self-contained story. I may yeah. paraphrase what I think you said. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a product of a lot of effort. So I'm, I'm hopeful it comes across that way. Um, I would say that one cool thing that's emerged from doing a bunch that has become its own sub-narrative is the thieving of work from people with less power and how the process hmm. of the, how the music industry and how creativity at large 
often is the product of the larger thing, the more powerful entity is often able to take the idea and have it be known to more people. Yeah. Not as a result of it being their original idea, right. but as a result of them taking what existed before and repackaging it in a new way, which, and by the way, that's not a judgment. I think that can be wonderful. And I actually, my thesis that's on, you know, in the process of being developed about all of this about creativity is that we really overvalue originality. Mm. It's really hard to find the first version of any one thing. Sure. What to me is creative is when it's, when things that potentially, potentially have previously existed in other forms, other songs, other works are newly pieced together uniquely through the voice of the artist. And there's some special sauce on top that's hard to like articulate as a general thing, but that's the sort of, that's the creative spark. That's the uniqueness that makes it, that gives it value, I'd say. So that tends, the, the, the through line though, I would say of all of these videos is that there is a sub narrative about power and about people with power, sometimes quashing the people without the power. Sure. Now I'm sure the, not irony, irony is not the right word, but the, uh, hmm. Folks will be, uh, what immediately jumps to mind is, hey, wait a second, this guy's talking about exactly what he did, isn't he? I think my interest in the topic comes from a belief that all creativity comes from something else. Mm -hmm. And it's a not universally distributed system of, of like literally the legalities of it. The rules are not evenly distributed. Right. An easy example of that, and I've got a lot of them, is mm -hmm. cover versions are nearly effortless to create and yes. to produce. Because all you need to do is pay for the mechanical, the, the compulsory mechanical license, right. and you don't need permission. And there is a cost structure which is predictable. And there's even a structure in place to have the compensation take place with Harry Fox and everything. So if you wanted to cover a song, if you want to take an entire song mm -hmm. and cover it, you're allowed to do that legally, and it's really easy. You do give up 100% of the publishing. Your money is only going to come from the recording side of it. Sure. But that's clear. And simple. Once you start getting into pieces of a song, whether it's because of an interpolation, which would just be the re-recorded version of a melody, or a sample, which is where you take the recording and you use that in your song, that's when things go out the window and become, I think, potentially prohibitively complicated and expensive. And that's where the power thing I just mentioned comes into play. Right. I've just been reading about Alan Klein. Um, as a lawyer, you said you're a lawyer, you've yes. been in law. Yeah. I mean, Alan Klein's one of those his people in history that people know about, even though he was like behind the scenes as a publisher and because he's been correctly maligned as the villain, including in the, the Get Back documentary, mm. he's correctly maligned as the villain in the Verve being ripped off by the Stones story, which people seem to know about. Um, he was the head of a publishing company, long story short, that got the rights to the Rolling Stones catalog, Beatles catalog, and ends up squeezing every penny from it um, to the degree that the people he was essentially working for, these artists, the Stones, the Beatles, wanted out themselves. They were like, right. dude, chill, bro. <laughs> and you, you correctly point out that I have myself infringed on copyright law. To what end? Well, it wasn't for financial gain. Mm -hmm. It was in my... In my worldview about how this ought to work, I think you've got in hip hop, you've got mixtapes. I think in dance music culture, you have white labels. You have these traditions where it's understood 
that the work is going to be other people's work is going to be reused, but it is not necessarily right. for financial gain all the time. It's for exposure. It's to have a unique piece of work that you as the DJ have a version of a song, your own remix that nobody else right. has. So it brings, this is by the way, a big Jamaican thing. That's a huge part of Jamaican culture and Jamaican music history is the unique. It's actually the origin of remixing itself is right. literally if you had the King Tubby remix at, you know, Cox and Dodd's downbeat sound system and nobody else had it, you're going to Cox and Dodd's sound system right. and screw you, do greed, you know? Yeah. So this is to me a very uh, essential part of the creative process in music is being allowed to access and reuse existing ideas. And the question mark comes in this huge gray area about, well, what about monetizing it? What about rights? What about permission? That's a fair question. It's a fair question. And the complexity of that is beyond the scope of this sentence. <laughs> well, well, you know, you remind me, I spoke to uh, Professor K.J. Green, who's a professor out there in L.A., well-regarded guy. He was once the attorney for Public Enemy. And uh, we talked about this issue similarly because it is fascinating, like you pointed out, to avoid copyright infringement with a cover. Look, this is what you're taught in law school, right? In the real world, I don't know that this is the way it works necessarily. But what you're taught is the to avoid copyright infringement, your cover has to be close to the original. In other words, and a very easy Lyrically, example yes. is you, you can't do a, a country version of a hip hop song, then you might get in trouble. But it's odd that trying to imitate something keeps you out of copyright infringement in that regard. But like you're suggesting in another way, like with interpolation, you can get in trouble for making it sound too much like something. So it is bizarre. But KJ Green suggested we should have mechanical royalties for samples too. It should just I be out of that. the hands of the artist. Yeah. I 1000% agree with that. There's a great article that Dan Charnis wrote in Slate last month. Dan Charnis is a, a great author. He's got a hip hop book um, called the, the Big, I think it's called The Big Payback, James Brown reference right there. Mm. History of hip hop. But then his most recent book's about Dilla. It came out last year. And mm. I'm, I'm halfway through it. It's, He's a, he's a wonderful writer, um, and the history is fascinating about Jay Dilla. And he, I, I, I've been listening to him on some podcasts recently because I, you know, breaking news, uh, heard it first on, the, on this podcast. I, I'm about to delve into writing a book. Uh, I just signed a book deal. Awesome. Congratulations. And thank you. And so part of right now what I'm working out in real time through these half-formed sentences <laughs> is what the book will have as a through line through it. It is definitely going to be a book about many types of creative borrowing. If you've liked the videos, you will like the book. They have right. a lot of things in common. And one thing that I think isn't necessarily required, but I'd love to have a thesis statement for the book. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is going to be similar to what you just alluded to, that there ought to be a mechanism that's much simpler for this type of borrowing that for too long has been relegated for I think there's a lot of issues that are related to power, mm -hmm. a lot of issues related to race. Yes. The article I just alluded to with Charnis, he talks about how we have this framing, I think, since the late 80s and early 90s when those first hip-hop lawsuits came out. We have this cultural framing that hip-hop, that type of borrowing, we use the word theft. Mm. And if you step back and think about what is being stolen, what is being taken, right. does the person, does, do they not have it anymore? Mm -hmm. Is it like my bicycle? If you take my bicycle, I do not have my bicycle anymore. But if you, as public enemy, if you take something from a James Brown recording, are you adding more than you're taking? I would argue absolutely. 
because suddenly that James Brown recording is part of a musical conversation. And this goes back to the Jamaica thing. The wonderful thing about Jamaican music is that we're 40, 50 years into a musical conversation where you have rhythms from 1969 that still show up today, not because of laziness. The idea Mm -hmm. of theft and laziness are the things that are, to me, lazy ideas that we throw at hip hop for, I think, a lot of racist reasons. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it contextually as being, no, 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 this was a choice I made to refer to James Brown, to use this beat, because the history of hip hop with Cool Herc starts with using James Brown samples, excuse me, James Brown records. Um, So if we start to think about a a different framework for how we think about the type of borrowing that happens with the reuse of musical ideas, and does it really take something from the original person, or are they actually benefiting from it with the renewed context, another way to be heard, the renewed exposure, all the things that we know to be the benefits of having your song sampled beyond the monetary. And by the way, there's monetary. Right. Yeah. And uh, KJ Green does a lot of, uh, he's done a lot of writing and talking about uh, the racist components of uh, of trademark law. Yeah. hundred percent. No. Yeah. And the, and the goal generally of intellectual property law is what, you know, at least what they, you know, again, what they say, not necessarily in effect is this balancing of giving the person who's the first to market with something an opportunity to cash in, but not so much that it stifles creativity, you know, and, and affects culture in the long yes. term. But to your point, you think about like Disney, they've, they've had power enough to change trademark law for years now. They're never giving up Mickey. It seems like there's going to be no well, end next to year, the right? Isn't it next year? Unless something changes. And I, you know, right. it's, it could be possible. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't count them out changing because it is scheduled to happen next year. And there's, no way that's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so this whole conversation about the work that you do online and the work that you're, you know, you're hoping to then bring over to your book. And maybe this is, you said it, you set it up this way purposefully and, you know, consciously that you're filling in that gap that you suggested we had in the eighties where you could learn about music while hearing music. And it didn't, it didn't require the audio file to do much legwork. Uh, whereas today, you know, we don't have that, but you've taken advantage of a medium that, you know, certainly generations, younger generations and getting older now can use to, to, to get the education that you talk about. Maybe we lack. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a very astute connection. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the one foot in front of the other thing really defines everything about me from the minor, macro to the micro. <laughs> like when I'm sitting down to write a song, like you read you hear about Mozart and these sort of like geniuses who are like, they had a vision. (laughs) And when they went to the paper, all they had to do is transcribe what was already in their head. I do not have that gene. My music, everything I've ever made, um, whether it's a video or a song or remix, it's just like, okay, this sounds good. Now I'm going to do this. It's really just one thing. And then the next thing. And then I'm like, I think we're good. (laughs) I think this is done. So there isn't a grand plan behind it other than what my subconscious is maybe trying to fill in the gaps. You're right. It's very possible that that's where a lot of this is coming from, but I've been really pleasantly surprised about how with the videos, what the, the audience, first of all, is made up of the people who comment and like, and subscribe tend to be like really smart kind of nice looking people. Like every, like one out of a hundred comments is like someone coming in real hot and they usually, they're very strangely like taking the sides of the billionaires. Like I was engaged today with somebody about my Verve Rolling Stones video yeah. and they were bizarrely taking the side of like, well, Mick and Keith had nothing to do with it. It was all Alan Klein. And I'm like, I don't think huh. that's the case. I think Alan Klein's power ends at a certain point 
especially when he dies in 2009. Mm. There's at least a decade where Mick and Keith could have been like, you know what? I feel bad about yeah. what, what happened over there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's give this guy a break. But they waited an extra. So all this to say that for the most part, the people that are seeming to be responding to the videos outside of that 1% yeah. of the billionaire defenders, <laughs> the billionaire defense society that <laughs> is paying people to come comment on my videos. Yeah. I think that there's an appreciation for the storytelling. There's an appreciation for the sort of almost um, stealth musicology that's in there. Mm-hmm. Like I definitely make an effort to not be heavy handed about like, here is a lesson on you know, the terminology that you didn't know before, but obviously with my catchphrase interpolation, et cetera, there's a mm-hmm. little bit in there. And I think it, it, it seems to be the right balance where there's something new. There's something maybe shown in a familiar, about a familiar song, but in an unfamiliar light, for example, when you hear the stems when you hear the vocals in isolation, to me, that's one of the most wonderful things is here's something you've heard before, but never quite like this. Yeah. So hopefully I'm 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 keeping that balance and in, in, in that little sixty second time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, uh, listen, uh, uh, taking it back just a moment, and with regard to your videos and your music, because I've certainly listened to your music and your remixes, and I think your bird centric uh, thing about a certain motel or something in a different particular state remix, I thought that was fantastic, <laughs> and it's funny because it struck it struck me as the kind of thing that. Uh, if they were a, a, a modern TV series on Netflix or Hulu, you know how they do this nowadays. Oh, we want to use this song, but not the exact version. Right. Get me that guy. That's exactly what they would do. And it would be, you know, right. perfect. so it's so silly. But yeah. you're coming about Mozart and this thing of genius and how you work. I think you're probably not giving yourself credit. And probably those guys are oversold in a sense that isn't your experience writing music that even if you lay down one track, you start to hear what's missing. And then you put that in and sure. you hear the other thing that's missing and so on and so forth. And there's a kind of alchemy to that. I think that's probably true. And I think you're right. It probably is oversold. That said, I think it depends on the sort of person. For example, I have a collaborator now I'm working with. And because he's not a musician per se, yep. he's a DJ. He loves music. It's mm. it's sort of, he's coming from a different place. And I have, I have a handful of friends who have similar experiences where like they're more the music person and the other person's more, this happens a lot actually in electronic music where there's mm. duos. I've come to actually expect that one guy's actually the keyboard guy and the other guy's the idea guy. But that's a really, that's a really um, potent mix because you've sure. got somebody who's objectivity about the micro. They're thinking like a DJ would think, which is in their experience, when I put this on, people, people dance. And when I put this on, they stop dancing. So this, <laughs> right. this really binary effectiveness <laughs> test then let this test is is this going to work and that's not something that when you're in the middle of choosing chord changes or you know selecting a snare drum you're so in the weeds that that's completely (laughs) lost so i think there's there could be that mindset which i don't have which is the more um leaning back that's kind of what a lot of producers are like too i think that rick rubin is probably that type of producer he's the lean back type he's the like you know Mm -hmm. what um, I think we got to rewrite everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's more inclined to do that. So that's maybe it's, maybe there's ends of the spectrum like that. And I'm kind of more on the, in the weeds end of the spectrum than the big picture end of the spectrum yeah. as a creator. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I was thinking about starting my own TikTok slash Instagram, do my own reels where I take your songs and <laughs> explain where they, and I, I won't whisper interpolation. Maybe I'll shout it. <laughs> interpolation. Please. Yeah. Like that's I'm a the logical, that's how you build. 
build, yeah. build, build. Yeah. No, build, build, build. Because build, listening, build, to, build, build, build. listening to your music, you know, it, it does become, and maybe it's from some of the lessons I learned on your, on your channels in there. Wait a second. This bass reminds what? me of something. And this oh, for sure. guitar. And, Everything uh, comes from yeah. something. There's, there's no secret about it. If, if anything, I get suspicious of people who are going to the mat claiming that it's like, it's, it had never happened before. This had never been done before. This song had never been, these chords have never been together. Yeah. They've never been together quite this way. And yeah. with this melody and this production and this particular vocal with their particular yeah. work. Sure. But there is the idea of prior art is what comes into play in the sort of legal terminology. So, you know, last year there was a big brouhaha about the Dua Lipa song Levitating. Mm, right. And this Florida band called Article Sound System who said, wait a second, our song does that too. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And then was added to the, as this was happening in public, people started saying, well, wait a second. We've also noted that there's an outcast song, Miss Jackson. So yeah. there might be prior art before that. There, that stuff unfolds over time as people start to like notice, or I'm sure this will be accelerated with AI any minute now mm -hmm. that you don't have to wait for somebody to discover outcast. It'll yeah. just be immediately apparent that it's probably where all this stuff leads and probably this year. But um, anyway, all this to say that I'm skeptical of anybody who goes into the making of or the appreciation of or the like billionaire protection society of yeah. saying, no, they've never they've never done this before. This has never happened before. Right. I, I actually just want to end that that thought with um, I'd written a post about this a few months ago about originality and kind of playing on what I said earlier in our conversation about, you know, I think originality is overstated originalness. Like it's probably related to capitalist society and the need for something in order to be copyrighted, to monetize it or it to be submitted as wholly original. Mm -hmm. So there's probably, there's almost always an economic force behind every right. <laughs> terrible, terrible policy like that. But like I was, and I, I ended my sentence with, and blah, 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 blah. No one's, and, you know, I, I think it's overrated to think that original things require the reinvention of the wheel. And once yeah. I wrote that and posted it, a friend of mine sent me a gif of a dung beetle with doing the wheelie thing. So we didn't even, humans didn't even invent the damn wheel. <laughs> right. The yes. wheel has a precedence in, in cult, in, in, on planet earth prior to humans. Yes. No surprise. I love there. that as a metaphor yes. for all this stuff. You can, there's a dung beetle for every melody. <laughs> There's a dung beetle, yes. Have we got it down to the dung beetle? Yeah. If you get down to that level, that's the base level. You know, to, right. to your point about originality and, and music and, you know, sort of the corporations that maybe you want to just say that, you know, lock down certain things. Music is mathematical. I mean, as you know, if you're in a certain key and you play this chord and then this chord, you're either going to one chord or another. That's it. You know, I mean, you could do right. something really wild, but then your audience is probably going to be sort of thrown off. Um, so they, we're kind of locked into 12 notes and, you know, and anyway, but th that said, no, you know, it's true. Yeah. It, it's interesting to me that, you know, interpolation, I'm thinking about that versus sampling and how you, you were saying something earlier that made me think of it. I love hip hop. And I think, and probably cause I'm, I'm the old guy that says music today is not as good. It's not, there's just certainly exceptions to that. I love Dua Lipa, yeah. for example. I like a lot of that, that, that music of her ilk and her, you know, peers. Um, but hip hop to me seemed to suffer the most 
because of how the copyright laws, you know, certainly coalesced at the late 80s and 90s where they were starting to lock things down, where today you couldn't have, you know, albums by, you couldn't have Paul's Boutique, you couldn't have A Nation of Millions, you couldn't have, uh, right. thinking about- um, uh, Three Feet High and Rising. Yes. I mean, it took, yeah. These guys didn't make a penny off of it, I don't think, because it hasn't, yeah. you know- it's a shame. It's a real terrible thing. That case is really interesting. And I'm still investigating it towards a video because it did, they were really shafted by their former label, by Tommy Boy. Yeah. And Tommy Boy wanted them to pay for the clearance rights and everything it was really gross. It, the story I've heard, at least, yeah. is that they were bought out by Reservoir Media, who generously said, We're going to help you out. Let's get this record out. And the other big key part of it was this woman, I'm spacing on her name. It's. Mm. I'll find it for you and get it to you. But she was the woman who had been there from day one and helped do all the clearances. She went in and said to all of the rights holders, let's be a part of hip hop history together. Let's get this record out where it deserves to be. By the way, in parallel to all this, Paul's boutique has just always been out. Do you know what I mean? So if there's like, if there's a white black thing happening, it, it, it might be happening there. Yeah. But just long story short, what I'm still investigating and when I'm done, I'll, I'll do a video about it. Maybe it's even a chapter is the album is out. Three Feet High and Rising is now out. I've got it on vinyl. Mm-hmm. But as we, I think, all know, the digital, there are differences in the streaming version. And as I'm listening through, some of the differences are really blatant. Like they had to take out the, oh, what's the one? There's one that's like a string of 20 samples in yeah, a row. Eddie Murphy's in there. I cool, remember. cool Breeze, Eddie Murphy's in there. Yeah. Exactly. They, just, they just took that out altogether. Yeah. But there's a few where there are replays where they couldn't clear the rights to use the recorded. So they re-recorded yeah. and, and I'm not sure what they are yet. So part of it is like, it's a, it's a really, um, it's a forensic yes. musicology <laughs> investigation yeah. to determine, for example, the song, I know that's the one. Dun, 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 yeah. dun, 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 dun. It's got the D- Steely Dan in it. It's got Otis Redding. It is now credited, interestingly, to De La Soul, comma, Otis Redding. Mm. So mm-hmm. interesting to me that part of the negotiation appeared to be I wonder if what they said was, listen, let us clear it for X dollars and we'll put you on streaming services. You'll get that many more streams as a result of it. All kinds of interesting complexities that come out of it now. Yeah. So anyway, that that particular case is interesting to me because I'm in the middle of figuring it out. The replays, it's fascinating that you say that because, you know, and we've had this happen before. And and, uh, I think about like... uh, uh, the show, you know, Dougie Fresh, the show where they had to cut out the Beatles uh, portion of it, you know, where he does the, uh, he sings uh, Michelle, a line from Michelle. Uh, but to your point, Paul's Boutique, they sampled the Beatles somehow. Beast, I love the Beastie Boys. Somehow they sampled the Beatles, which I think is like, sure. you know, impossible. Um, right. But, um, oh, yeah, oh, the, a few songs, yeah, a few different, yeah. yeah. The, um, but what I was going to say is interesting with the replays is how it bugs us that there is this element of, I'm thinking about Vogue and the cakes with Vogue, you know, they had to have that horn, right? It seemed clear and the court agreed, right? They, Madonna. Yeah. They either recreated Madonna or Vogue, stole yeah. that horn. Right. Was dun, dun. right. Yeah. And there's something for me, I don't know. I get it. Like if I were to yeah. able to recreate that, it wouldn't feel the same. The authenticity feels lost. Is I, that what you mean? Yeah. And maybe it's being yeah. tied to what come came before and being almost like a, chronology of what came before and honoring mm-hmm. it and all that's absent. Right. It feels gross if you just kind of imitate it. Mm. Well, you're, you're speaking to something that I was saying before about the, the musical, the historical musical dialogue. I think of it as almost Talmudic. There's mm. something really beautiful about the commentary on the commentary on mm. the commentary. And here we are 2000 years later, yeah. and we have this ever growing and expanding document 
what a wonderful metaphor for yeah. how music can also be and how it is in Jamaica. By the way, the whole Jamaican example I keep going back to, it's yeah. not the utopia that maybe I'm making it out to be. There are major problems with how musicians were treated. If you're a musician who made, um, you know, Stalag 17, which is the bum, 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 that song. If you are part of the creation of any one of these rhythms that get reused hundreds of times, you are paid $20 mm-hmm. that day. And that's it. You have no IP. Wow. It's the producer. There's all kinds of problematic elements to it. But as a listener and as a culture, we've got 50 years of accumulation that's baked into a song and that instantly gives it kind of a richer, right. I think, texture as to a listener because right. you... You sense the authenticity, I think, as you were alluding to. You sense that this is part of a longer dialogue right. with the right. past. And you remind me of uh, Men at Work getting sued for that uh, Kookaburra bird yeah, yeah, song. Yeah. <laughs> the interpolate that children's folk song. That right. I, 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 Look, I'm not Australian. And so at the time I heard the song in the 80s, I just loved the song. But I can imagine being an Australian hearing it. And there's just this immediate feeling of warmth and familiarity that like you're suggesting ties you to a whole earlier culture or history of your right. people. I'm, I'm in the early stages of working on something for that story too. Okay. And so this is subject to change when I have more information, but it, I think it was, um, I think the, the flute player um, ended up committing suicide. Oh gosh. Um, in part because of the devastated nature of what that suit, that lawsuit did to them. To, I don't know if it was just financially, I don't know if it was their credibility as musicians, but something about that kookaburra lawsuit, um, which again, I think what was really stolen, what mm-hmm. was really taken from kookaburra, if anything, you and I, right. 10 billion miles away, 10,000 yeah. years later, are mm-hmm. talking about kookaburra. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not necessarily something where kookaburra's author was damaged, right. was had, had anything that they lost by the use. Right. So that's the sort of situation besides the sadness of the story. Um, of of the of the musician himself, of the musician who took his own life possibly because of it. Yeah. Um, I think that there really isn't anything that is that is taken from the originator. I think more is given. I think more comes to them. Yeah. So I wish there were an easier way to license interpolations and samples in the same way as we talked about up front, in the same way that it is done with covers, so that there is a clearer path to originators being paid and not just, you know, saying, thank you very much for exposing me more. I think there should be some kind of compensation, but I think that what ends up happening is more of these Alan Klein type cases where mm-hmm. somebody's like, ah, you forgot to ask permission right. up yours, mm-hmm. buddy. And that's mm-hmm. what sting did with it, with, uh, with P Diddy. Those right. stories can't happen in a world where there's something that's more of a right. compulsory. Yeah. And do you imagine in these situations, if we were to have, have these more sort of, you know, mechanical or compulsory sort of uh, mechanisms, I said mechanism and mechanical. That's fine. Um, that the, the, the audience would govern it. That nobody wants to, if it gets too, look, if you use too many samples from something or interpolate too many songs and it's garbage or it's overdone or I've heard it too many times, folks aren't going to listen to it. I mean, there's, that maybe yeah. there's some kind of self-regulation sort of built into it. Probably right. I mean, if something is, I think we both can think of examples of samples. Here's an easy one. I think yeah. Ice Ice Baby is just like a classic example, or even, you know, this is maybe treading a line a little bit. I, I, in my mind, Ice Ice Baby, where Vanilla Ice, just kind of wholesale, whether it's an interpolation or a sample, by the way, is open to discussion. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Queen, the uh, under pressure baseline. Yeah. Um, or whether MC Hammer wholesale lifts two bars of Rick James' 
um, you know, super freak for can't touch this. I mean, you could even argue as much as I'm trying to bring those up as examples of like lazy sampling where the market will maybe not. I mean, maybe those are actually examples of the other phenomenon I was referring to of the cultural dialogue. Yeah. It's hard for me to think of an example of sampling where it's just inherently a bad, cheap, lazy thing to do. I think I think that they probably exist, but nothing necessarily leaps to mind as being an example of that. I think more often than not, a creative reuse is almost going to be happening by nature of the vocals on top and the arrangement and maybe the beat being added. You know, they won't all be good. They won't all be equally good, some better than yeah, others. But yeah. I think that the opportunity to try should be there, should be more easily readily available. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Just by the mere use of a sample, there's something, I don't know, magical that happens. And maybe it's just because of how something unique to us, you know, that makes us really appreciate that music more than uh, other folks might. But, but then, and, and then the flip side is, you know, some really creative use of samples or creative, uh, this, the sources that folks choose to, to sample, like, you've got somebody taking elements of songs I already loved, especially from different genres. I love third base. Using That's where blood. you do like it or don't like it. I love it. Blood okay. uh, third yeah. base using blood, sweat and tears. I mean, what, you know, that kind of thing. Or, uh, it was, it was Tupac. I think that has uh Joe Cocker. You've got, I don't know, Michael McDonald or sampling. Right. Folks you would never suspect. Commons with the, the, the Bobby Codwell. I was just listening to that. The light the other day. Like I love, I love the juxtaposition of, of like surprising. Well, yeah. We just already mentioned like Tribe called Quest and De La Soul practically pioneered, yeah. you know, this whole like new category, bringing jazz into it, bringing like crazy chord progressions. And like, that's so wonderful. That's like, that's reuse. That's just clearly, how is it different from playing a song on the radio? I've heard that song before. Therefore, yeah. you playing the song on the radio is unoriginal. Well, I mean, it's to me, the argument isn't much different. We are taking something that already existed, duh, and we're recontextualizing it. That's life. That's how, that's how we do stuff. Right. That's how we move forward in the world. Blake, thank you so much for your time today. And more importantly, uh, helping us move forward uh, in the world, as you described, with uh, your work that you're doing to educate uh, so many folks uh, about the music that we love. I I'm doing my part, you know, I have been for years. I'm that guy that, you know, when we're in the, in the car listening to music, I point out to my kids, okay, this is actually a cover of this other song, or this is actually a, a sample from this other thing. My kids now can identify most uh, samples of uh, the incredible bongo band in music, Brilliant. but that's just two kids I'm taking care of. You're doing the, the real doing work. The work together. Together. We'll yes. do the work together. We'll make this world a better place for inspiration and influence to not land you in court. Great guy. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed his videos before we got to talk. I felt uh, particularly excited and honored that uh, he would spend the time talking to me today. And quite honestly, I could speak to him, speak with him for hours about this topic because it's just, it's fascinating to me. And it has been for years, you know. It's an intersection of so many things that I love and uh, so many of my interests. Uh, in any case, we wish him all the best and certainly we'll keep an eye out for his book and continue to watch his videos. I certainly, I look, I sincerely suggest you run out right now, subscribe to his TikTok, Instagram, all those socials so that you can find these videos and see them as they come out because they are fascinating and educating. Okay, hey, on behalf of me, Will, and Cat and John, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness.